0: Our text this morning comes from the very end of the book of Ephesians. I know some of you have thought, are we ever going to finish our series on the book of Ephesians? And today we actually are. We're in chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 18 through 24. For those of you who are visiting, uh, we're, as we said, right at the end of a series on Ephesians. And here's the question that we've been asking each week as we've looked at these texts. What, what is this book of Ephesians, this letter written to this group of God's people, what does it say to us about what it means for us to become a community of grace, to be more of a community of grace. And this morning we're wrapping that up. Um, the next couple weeks we're going to be spending time um, leading up to Jesus, leading up to Easter, looking at Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, and we're going to be talking about the Passover uh, at our Monday Thursday service, which I'd encourage you to attend. Uh, there's an announcement about that in your bulletin, and then finishing that uh two-and-a-half-week series with Easter in a couple weeks. Okay, let's uh, let's turn to our text here in Ephesians this morning. But first, let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and we are people in need of your word. We need to hear from our God. We pray that by your Spirit you would speak to us this morning. We thank you that you um, have given us this. We pray that you'd open our hearts to receive it. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 18, this is on page 979, if you happen to be using one of our pew Bibles. We're picking up in mid-sentence with Paul's flow of thought here, verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychius, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Uh, The book of Ephesians essentially begins in the first couple chapters with a prayer by Paul for these people, and then he ends his book um, for us after all these weeks uh, by exhorting us to pray as well too. Okay, so here's here's our point for today. Here's what we're going to see in this passage. The prayer does three things for us. It transforms the way we see ourselves. And prayer transforms the way we see our mission in the world, and prayer transforms the way we see our God. Okay, the way we see ourselves, the way we see our mission in the world, and the way we see our God. First, prayer transforms the way we see ourselves. Can I tell you two stories about myself and one about my daughter? This week, in the middle of a conversation with a friend, I realized that I had an an unrecognized hero from my childhood, Um, one that I I hesitate to tell you about because it's going to put a certain label on me. But I'll I'll risk it anyway. In the middle of this conversation, uh, my friend was basically asking me this: Why, why is it that you feel like you so badly feel like you have to get everything right? Why, why do you so badly feel like you just you can't mess anything up? What is it that causes that? And then I heard this voice from my childhood speaking. Twenty-five years ago, I found this year, came the second Star Trek movie. The Wrath of Khan, if you remember that movie. And I realized, though I hate to admit it, that Captain James T. Kirk is one of my childhood heroes. And, And here's why. More of you than want to care to admit remember this movie. But let me tell you about this movie. Captain Kirk, in the middle of this movie, he, he talks about this test that he had to go through when he was in school, that all Starfleet captains have to go through when they're in school, and it's called the Kobayashi Maru test. Now, here's what happens. It's a, it's a starship simulator, and you're the captain in the simulation, and somebody needs to be rescued, and there are enemies coming your way, and essentially, it's an unwinnable situation. Okay, somebody's going to die. Something's going to fail. And it was meant to be this test of character and decision-making for the cadets. What would you do in an unwinnable situation? The movie opens up with a new cadet going through this test, failing miserably, and then speaking to Captain Kirk. And and he says to this young cadet, hasn't it ever occurred to you that there's a no-win situation where nothing will end up going right? And the young cadet says, no, it, that's never occurred to me. Well, you find out later in the course of the movie that when Captain Kirk himself went through this test, that he, he couldn't handle the thought of a no-win situation. So he snuck into uh, the computer system overnight and he changed the program so that there was a winnable solution. So the next day when he went through the test, he was the only person ever to successfully uh, navigate that test. And somewhere in the movie he says, he admits later on, I don't believe... In the no-win situation. And at some point this week in conversation with my friend, I realized that I don't believe in a no-win situation. And for me, what that's meant is I believe that if I try hard enough, I can make my life work. If we just try hard enough, we can just be clever enough, if we can just be smart enough. And in this movie, Wrath of Khan, at the critical moment when all is in despair and everything seems to be lost, Suddenly, you find that Captain Kirk has been clever from the beginning, and he gives the twist at the end, and everything falls into place for him, because there's no no-win situation. A few years ago, when I uh, went on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship back in North Carolina, um, we had a staff meeting for those of us on staff at Carolina, and we went and had this retreat, and we did these team-building exercises. Uh, and at some point during those, my new staff director looked at me and he said, you don't really like to ask for help, do you? And I was young enough to sort of spin that in my mind as some sort of compliment. I, I took comfort <laughs> in that. Came to realize later on, maybe that wasn't a strong point. Okay, Two stories about myself. Let me tell you a story about my daughter. Uh, she's nearly three and she's learned to do all kinds of things and her latest line is I want to do it by myself. Do it by myself. She's getting dressed, she's learning to brush her teeth. I want to do it by myself. Now when you're teaching a child to get dressed, when you're teaching a child to brush her teeth, there's something appropriate about it. I want to do it by myself. The problem is that we generalize that in so many different areas of our life. We have what it takes to do it by ourselves to get it done. This passage that we're reading this morning tells us that in the most fundamental aspects of our life, we can't do it by ourselves. It tells us that to be a Christian is to admit that you don't have what it takes to pull off your own life. And okay, I'm telling us this morning, because I'm not the only one here that works like this. Many of us believe this. We're people who have worked hard in the past, in the present. And you believe that at the end of the day, you can somehow pull it off. You can make your situation work out. You can make your life work out. You can pull off the grades that you need. You can manage uh, so that you can have the retirement that you need. You can make things somehow magically work out in your family. Okay, now how do I know that's true? How do we know that's true about our lives? Well, there are probably a lot of things that we could point to in our lives that evidence the fact that we think we can pull it off on our own. Um, One of those might simply be how distressed most of us get when things seem to fall apart. Why is that so disconcerting to us? Because we thought we could pull it off. We thought it was going to turn out okay in the end. But you see, this passage, I think, gives us an even clearer indication of this deep-seated belief that we have that we can rule our own lives, this pervasive need in our lives. We think we can make it on our own. And it's the fact that we don't pray. I mean, we pray. We pray. We don't, we don't really pray. Not a lot of us. We don't like the fact that we need to pray. We don't pray as we would if we really believed that that was central to our ability to do what Paul mentioned in our passage last week, to stand. Think about the flow of this letter as we've gone through the book of Ephesians these last few months. Paul opens up with these prayers for his people. He says that I'm praying for you that you would know the reality of the gospel at work in your life, that you would see and taste and know God's salvation that comes to you in the middle of your need. He spent three chapters talking about this, the first half of the book of Ephesians. And then after about chapter 3, chapter 4, he switches into these exhortations. He says, given that that's true about you, that you are a people who have been rescued by God, what does it mean to live that out? Now that God's brought you into a new family, now that He's made you into this new humanity, Paul says, let's talk about how that works out in the real relationships of your life. Let's talk about what it means for us to be people who use our words well and not badly. Let's talk about what it means to be people who control our anger, who speak the truth, who are sexually pure. People are using their gifts for the community of believers. People whose marriages and families and work relationships honor God and benefit others. He says, let's talk about that. And then he says, in the passage we looked at last week, he says, you are a people with a real spiritual enemy, and you must put on the strength of God, the armor of God, if you're going to be kept safe. Okay, flow the argument up till now. And then maybe that leaves us asking this question, how in the world are we going to do that? How are we going to put on this armor of God? How are we going to rest in his strength and not our own? Well, Paul comes to it now in this passage here. He says, here's what you're going to do. You need to pray. All right, listen again to what Paul says about prayer in verses 18 and 19. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. Why are we to pray? Because we are fundamentally weak and needy people. We don't have the strength or the cleverness or the ability to pull off our own lives. We're weak. We don't have the strength that we need to love our families the way Paul talks about in this book of Ephesians. We're people that don't have the strength to use our words wisely instead of foolishly. We're people who don't have the strength to fight our spiritual battles on our own. John Stott, in his commentary on Ephesians, says this, Without prayer, we are much too feeble and flabby to stand against the might of the forces of evil. All right, now let's take a look a little more closely at at the first five things Paul tells us about prayer in this passage, verse 18 and 19. Look back with me at those two verses. Paul tells us essentially this, You and I are weak at all times, so we must pray at all times. You see, prayer is not only for the times when we feel that we're at the absolute end of our rope. Prayer is not just when our kids are sick, when we're not sure how our family is going to make it through. It's not just for the late night before an exam when our brains can't seem to take in any more information. Not just when we're in the emergency room with a serious medical complication. It's not just a thing that we do for each other when we can't think of anything more practical to do. Well, I'll pray for you. You know, when the situation seems bad, it seems so far beyond our ability to help, then then that is the moment when we think, okay, at least I can pray. But Paul tells us here that we are weak people all the time, and so we are people who must be praying all the time. We're in desperate need all the time, and so we need to pray. Now, the second thing he tells us, he says, you and I are weak, so we must pray in the Spirit. You know what it's like to try to pray and not know how to pray? Paul says, pray in the Spirit. Now, this verse is not talking about praying in tongues, as some people have interpreted it at times, because this is an exhortation to all Christians at all times. You're in the middle of a spiritual battle. We all must pray in the Spirit. In the Spirit means guided by the Spirit. And this is the same Holy Spirit that Paul's brought up time and again throughout the book of Ephesians. The same Holy Spirit with whom we were sealed when we came to faith. Chapter 1, verse 13 The same Holy Spirit who gives us access to the Father, chapter 2, verse 18. The same Holy Spirit who through God gives us His strength and power in our inner being, chapter 3, verse 16. The same Holy Spirit who is filling us, chapter 5, verse 18. It's the same Holy Spirit that Paul refers to in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. Listen to what Paul says there. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So Paul says pray in the Spirit. Your first prayer when you don't know how to pray is, Holy Spirit, help me to pray. Show me how to pray. Show me my need. Show me my condition and show me your gracious provision. Give me the desire to pray, the strength to pray, the encouragement to pray. Lead me, Holy Spirit. Paul says that we are people who need to pray in the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say that you and I are weak, so we must pray with all prayer and supplication. In other words, we must pray all kinds of prayers for all our many needs. These two words here, prayer and supplication, they're essentially synonyms. Pray about all kinds of stuff. Ask. Make supplication. Paul says, come to your heavenly father with your need, with all your needs, with all your weakness. Bring them to your father. There's no need to hold back. There's no need that your father doesn't care about. No need that your father can't meet. And there's no area of life where you're not in need. So he says, pray. Ask. Seek, knock, just as Jesus invited us. And he goes on and says, You and I are weak, so we must keep alert with all perseverance. We're weak people and we're always falling asleep on the job. And so Paul says, keep alert, persevere in your prayers. One commentator said this, Here believers are to persevere so as to overcome fatigue and discouragement and not fall into spiritual sleep or complacency. How often in the middle of our lives do we fall into spiritual sleep and complacency? Why? Because, because we think we can manage on our own. Um, this was driven home for me and for my wife Elizabeth a number of years ago, and I've told stories about this before. But we took students over to Romania for the summer. We spent eight weeks over there. None of us spoke Romanian, and we found ourselves as soon as we uh, walked into the country, very suddenly committed to prayer. We didn't speak the language. We were living in homes with Romanian families. We were trying to do this outreach to college students in, in, in another country, in another culture that we weren't familiar with. Um, part of the summer, we were living in Bucharest, a big city, and some of us had never even spent much time in an American big city, much less one where you didn't speak the language. It felt like a major accomplishment when we could go a few blocks down the road to the local market and come home with enough bread and sandwich meat to survive for the rest of the day, like we'd accomplished something and in the most basic tasks of our day we realized that we had to pray because we didn't have the resources we need to do even the most simple things in life it reminded us that we are people who are always dependent on prayer but here's the thing we were there for 8 weeks and by the end of the summer we got pretty good at going to the market and pretty good at sort of you know hand gestures and making ourselves understood and we got to know our way around the subways and around the city And we found ourselves not praying as much because we became comfortable and we suddenly lived under this illusion that we can make our lives work, that we can pull this off on our own. Paul tells us in the middle of our comfortability, in the middle of our numbness, he says, keep alert, persevere in prayer. As comfortable as you feel, you are still desperately in need of the God who holds you in your hand. And that's a good reminder for us, I think. If this week our marriage has been relatively calm, if this week you're, you're maintaining your GPA, if this week work is going okay, what tends to happen? We don't pray because we don't feel like we're in crisis. Paul says you can't ever let your guard down. You can't afford neglect to pray because we are always weak. We're always in need. And as he said in the passage immediately preceding this, we are always in a battle. We have an enemy who is at war with us and wants to destroy us. And Paul says, we must always pray. We must persevere. We must watch and pray because our self attained security is an illusion. Then he goes on and says, You and I are weak, so we must make supplication for all the saints. He says, We're not only weak individually, we're weak as a community. We're all in need of God's strength. We're all in need of prayer. So Paul tells us to pray for each other, all our fellow Christians. In other words, we should begin with praying for the people in this church. If we, this church, if we're going to be this community of grace that we've been talking about, then we're going to have to be a people who pray for each other. In other words, praying for each other is a foundational expression of what it means for us to love each other, to value this community, to step into this kind of connection with each other that Paul's been talking about for six chapters now. Let me give you a last picture of, on on this point of prayer, transforming the way we see ourselves. There is no such thing as spiritual independent living. There's no time in our lives when we're basically able to function on our own, able to make our own lives work, able to exist and thrive without real dependence on our God and even on each other, as the body of Christ. We are spiritually weak, dependent people, and God made us that way. Become a Christian is to say this, that I am and always have been a person in need of spiritual assisted living. There's no spiritual independent life. I'm always in need of help, always in need of rescue, encouragement, the strength of the Lord. And Paul says, so we are people who are called to pray. Prayer transforms the way we see ourselves. And it also, second thing, it transforms the way we see our mission in the world. Uh, Look again at verses 19 through 22. Pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. We'll just look at those two verses. Paul tells the Ephesians to pray. He tells them to pray for all the saints. And then he says, pray for me also. But look at what he asked for prayer for. Paul, the great missionary, the great apostle, the great writer of the New Testament, so much of it, he asks these people, he says, pray for me too. But he pray. what does he pray for? He prays for effective witness in the world. He says that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Verse 20, pray for me that I might speak it boldly as I ought to. Same prayer that he brings up in Colossians chapter four. There he says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. In other words, pray that I would preach well, that I would testify well to the grace of Jesus, to everybody that God brings me in contact with. And what's he doing? He's reminding the church that they are a people with a mission, that they've been entrusted with the gospel, and they are to bring that into the world around them, the hope of the gospel to all corners of the world. Seeing God's kingdom expand through the salvation and transformation of people's lives. This is the very mission that Jesus gave the church. What did he say? Go and make disciples of all nations. And Paul is reminding these Ephesian Christians, and he's reminding us that we're a part of this great mission. And that one way in which we step into this mission, Paul says, is pray for him. For us it means pray for the expansion of the gospel. Pray for the goodness of God's kingdom to be seen around us. It reminds us that our mission in the world, our mission as a church here in Williamsburg, is to bring the same gospel to the people around us, to be salt, to be light, to make disciples, uh, and that is only going to be accomplished through prayer. If we're going to see Jesus really come in and change people's lives, then that's only going to happen when we pray. We must pray for our city at all times. In the spirit, with all prayer and supplication, alert, with perseverance, Paul says we must pray. But there's a second way that prayer transforms the way we see our mission in the world. Look at the way Paul describes himself here uh, in verse 20. It's this strange, vivid, and, and paradoxical image. He says that he is an ambassador in chains. Okay, that should be a jarring picture for us. Because what's an ambassador? Well, it's it's an authorized representative of a king or of a country who comes uh, to represent that king or country to someone else. Uh, It's someone who speaks for his king, who speaks for his country. And to dishonor an ambassador, or in this case, imprison an ambassador, is to attack and dishonor the king or the country that he represents. Okay, you remember back in 1998 in August, um, two American embassies were uh, were bombed overseas—one in Kenya and one in Tanzania—by terrorists. And what did America do in response to that? When our when our embassies were attacked, we launched cruise missiles against uh, suspected terrorist sites in Afghanistan and Sudan. Why? Because an attack against our embassy where our ambassadors work is the same as an attack against our country. So when Paul says that I'm an ambassador in chains, there's something jarring here. It's an an insult and affront, not only against Paul, but against the one that he represents. Paul's been imprisoned, dishonored, and so he asks his fellow Christians to pray. But here's the thing. What does he ask them to pray for? For retaliation, For God to send cruise missiles to destroy the Roman Colosseum. What does he pray for? He prays that words would be given to him as he proclaims the gospel. He prays for boldness to preach and to share the gospel in the middle of his own imprisonment. He doesn't pray for revenge. He doesn't pray for retaliation. And this amazes me. He doesn't even pray that he would be released okay, what would happen if one of us were wrongly imprisoned for speaking the truth of the gospel here in Williamsburg and hauled off to jail? We would begin to pray for each other. And if that ever happens to me, I hope that you would pray that I would be released. (laughs) But here's the thing. That's not Paul's prayer. He doesn't even say, pray that I would be let go. His first prayer is, pray that I would speak the gospel boldly as I ought. And I think it teaches us at least three important things. One is that our witness to the world looks weak rather than strong. It looks like ambassadors in chains, not like cultural preeminence. It looks like dishonor rather than honor. And second thing, our weakness opens up avenues of ministry that would never be available to us in the middle of our strength. Now, it's not... We don't know for sure if if Paul's imprisonment that he refers to here is the one that led him ultimately to Rome or not. He was imprisoned more than once. But in any case, eventually that's where his imprisonments did lead him. Uh, He uh, is captured and he is sent to face Caesar because of his supposed crimes. And it's ironic that for Paul, the one who's been entrusted with uh, bringing the gospel to the Gentiles that one day he gets the opportunity of all opportunities to go and bring the gospel to the king of the Gentiles, the emperor of the known Western world. He's going to come before Caesar. And how did he get an audience with Caesar? Only through his weakness, only through his chains. He had an access to come before Caesar as a prisoner that he never would have had as a free man. That our engagement with the world often looks like weakness rather than strength. And our weakness may even open up avenues of ministry for us that we would never have otherwise. We see our weakness as a liability, and here we see that God sees it as an opportunity. Now the third thing, the an assault against an ambassador, as we said, is an assault against the one that he represents. Paul was willing to take the dishonor, the imprisonment, the weakness for the sake of the gospel. But here's the even more remarkable thing. So was God. Because an offense against God's ambassador is an offense against God himself, and God took it. You see, Paul knew the one that he represented. Paul was unjustly robbed of his freedom, and so was his Lord Jesus. Paul was likely mocked by his captors, and so was Jesus Tradition tells us that Paul was eventually put to death by the very people he came to testify to. And so was his Lord Jesus. How could Paul take this? Take this kind of weakness. Take this kind of dishonor, this kind of suffering because he was following Jesus. The one who also took dishonor and weakness and this kind of suffering. See, Jesus came not only to save us in spite of his sufferings, he saved us through that suffering. And Paul was willing to follow where Jesus led him. Okay, what does that mean for us? It means that our hope as a church is not in our cultural strength and it's not in being respected and it's not in being honored. Our hope is the God who works through weakness, through suffering, through dishonor to win a lost and dying world to himself. Our hope as a church lies not in our own strength or influence, but rather in the God who hears and uses and answers our prayers, the prayers of weak people. Uh, recently, in an, there was an article in uh, By Faith, which is our den- denomination's magazine, um, where they interviewed a guy named Sam Wheatley, who's pastor of a PCA church in Salt Lake City. Listen to what he says. talks about doing ministry in the middle of a state that's dominated by Mormonism. He says, being an outsider, the church regains its role as servant. When Christianity is not the dominant faith, as in Utah, when it's forced to take the lowest seat at the table, it renews its understanding of service and rediscovers the promise that the greatest is the least. From a position of cultural weakness, the church renews her dependence on the Lord. And this is evidenced by a renewed emphasis on prayer. Being an outsider drives us to pray, not as a duty to be checked off the list, but as a means of survival. The church that grasps the human impossibility of its task will become a praying congregation. The future of the church centers on prayer. And may that be true of our church as well. Prayer changes the way we see ourselves. It changes the way we see our mission. And finally and briefly, it transforms the way we see our God. Where does this passage leave us? We are weak people who must pray. We have a mission in this world that's characterized by weakness. Where does that leave us? What happens? What do we get as we pray these prayers? Look at me, Look with me uh, at verses 23 and 24. See how Paul closes this whole letter. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love and love incorruptible. God gives us in our weakness what we can't get for ourselves, the peace, the love with faith, the grace, the presence and favor of our God. Now, grace and peace were the very wishes that Paul opened his letter with in chapter 1, verse 2, and they're what he ends his letter with now, six chapters later. How are we, in our weakness, going to love each other in this community of faith? How are we going to love this world around us and love this city when it heaps dishonor on us? Only if we know the love that the Father's lavished on us. Only if we're able to look at the love of our Savior for us. As Paul says, love with faith. Faith to see the love of God for us. The very thing that Paul has put at the center of his letter. This love of God reaching out to lost, dying people like us. Only in knowing that love are we going to be able to Follow him in our weakness. There's a difference between um, doing what I'm encouraging us to, which is realizing our weakness in the gospel and living in weakness of despair. Some of us know the weakness of despair. We look at our lives and we say, I don't feel strong. That's not my problem. I feel weak all the time. And everything around me is crushing me. I don't for a minute believe I have to." I have what it takes to pull off my life. And where does it leave us so often? In the middle of utter despair. Paul talks to us about a gospel weakness. Weakness that is infused with hope. Weakness that doesn't walk off the edge of despair, but rests on the solid ground of the love, provision, and care of our Savior. The one who really is strong. The one who really does give strength to his weak and dependent people. And that is the very strength that we need. And when we see Jesus given for us in our weakness, coming to us with his strength, we're going to be able to say with Paul what he says at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Familiar passage. Paul's been talking about this ongoing, very bitter struggle in his life. Uh, He refers to it as having this thorn in his flesh, something that is just tormenting him. And three times he prays that Jesus would take it away from him. In other words, take away this weakness, this struggle. Here's what he says. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, For when I am weak, then I am strong. And that is what prayer does for us. It forces us to live in the reality that we are weak people, but it also brings us the reality of the fact that we serve a strong God. And in our weakness and in our prayers, we find the strength of God himself, the power of God that is made perfect in weakness. Now, if you're like me, and you are not a good prayer. You're not someone who likes to look at the reality of weakness. Hear this passage not as condemnation, but as invitation. That we might people be people who would learn to pray and desire to pray and rest in prayer. Because we're willing and able now to see the truth about ourselves, our own need, because standing there, with us holding us up is a savior who is strong enough for weak people like us. Let's pray. Father, we are weak people and you are a strong and mighty God. May you be glorified in our lives. May you give us the strength that we need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.